Let me say to you that uh, let's have the same ground rules that we had last night. If you've got to uh, get up to stay awake or to take a little break in the men's room or back there, just feel free to do that. Um, also, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to, uh, to break in and ask them. Don't worry about my losing my place. I don't know where I'm going anyway. So, uh, let's keep it very, very informal. What I'd like to do this morning is kind of review very briefly where we were last night. We began by pointing out that the whole area of history and studying it is, is a uh, difficult and a complex thing simply because we all come to it from a different cultural, uh, theological uh, perspective. And we see things differently. And this is the stuff of which denominations are made. And another thing that complicates it is the fact that uh, we've got such a huge amount of hay on our fork. We've got 2,000 years with the whole world and with all the forces that came to place or bear on the whole Christian movement. And that makes it very, very complicated. We began, you remember, talking about the major religions of the world. And uh, of those, the two major ones, which were the fount of all others, were Hinduism and uh, Judaism. And the distinction between them was the distinction between that which is natural and that which is supernatural, that which is the product of reason and that which is the product of revelation. And we talked about the differences uh, between these. And then from there, we began our actual movement in the first expansion of Christianity, the first 400 years. And the expansion really took place in two major sections, one covered in the Bible and one not. The one covered in the Bible were the journeys of the Apostle Paul, such as Corinth, here in Greece, and in uh, the provinces of Galatia, which are modern Turkey today. And in that time, the Apostle Paul had a chance to influence a group of people, bilingual people, called Celtics. And the Celtic people were settled in this area right here of Europe. And as the years progressed, eventually went across the channel, moved into, into England, and then on over into Ireland. And they were assimilated later on, and we'll see that as we move through today, but they were assimilated by the other peoples. But the modern Celtic people today are the Irish. And the other movement was here in the south and the southern France, I mean southern Europe. And in that movement, the gospel of Jesus Christ hitched its wagon to the Roman Empire. And with the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, Christianity became the accepted religion of the empire and there were good and bad effects from that and I just want to point out that Christianity has not ever been able to resist the temptation to hook its wagon to a political or economic movement simply because it sees the tremendous advantages that uh, are given to them through that so that for example when uh, imperialism took place when Portugal and Spain began their expansion and conquest of foreign countries and then again when Great Britain and Germany and some of these other uh, countries followed along 
and uh, developed, for example, the British Empire, it was irresistible for the missionary movement to hang on to that and move with them. And there were tremendous advantages, but always it boomeranged on them. And we see this in that first 400 years when Christianity became an inclusive rather than an exclusive religion. And when uh, the masses began to flock into the churches, and when the church was identified with the Roman Empire, it developed a, a set of problems that was to haunt it for many, many years. And we're going to see what those haunting consequences were of that. There was no way in the world that the church could have foreseen that that was going to take place. And even if they had foreseen it, I'm sure that a lot of uh, thinking men would have said, well, we'll risk it anyway, because the advantages of taking the gospel through the machinery of the Roman Empire and spreading it across the empire are just almost irresistible. And so that's exactly what they did. As a result, the empire virtually turned Christian as far as uh, its allegiance to uh, what the claims of the church were. And uh, so there was tremendous growth in those 400 years. But I want you to notice that the growth did not take place through a planned missionary strategy. There was no vehicle established for the growth of it. There were no institutions that were established. There were no sodalities, so to speak, in terms of an organizational form that were established. The Apostle Paul, for example, and his little traveling band of men were not amenable to any particular church or any particular organization. They were not supported by a whole missionary board that held the push strings and told them what they could do and could not do. They didn't receive dictums from uh, either Jerusalem or Antioch or any place else as to what they ought to do. They just simply moved out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as it began to grow and it began to propagate, the people who came under its influence understood that the responsibility of its reproduction was theirs. The New Testament and the people who propagated the gospel in the New Testament understood that evangelism was individual, it was not corporate. That the, that the task of evangelism was not given to the corporate body, it was given to the individual. And they understood that, and that was the dynamic of it. Now let me say also by way of introduction here, a review, that Christianity by its nature is a religion of mission. And whether it is individual or whether it is corporate, whether it has to do with you as a man or whether it has to do with the sodality or the modality, that the health of it is always in terms of the degree to which it's, being, it's willing to get involved in mission. You see that in your own lives. You see that in your church. You'll see that in uh, organizations like Campus Crusade or Christian Businessmen or the NABs or Wycliffe or any other organization. To the degree that they're involved in evangelism, they're healthy. To the degree that they're not involved in evangelism, they are becoming sterile and they become problem-orientated and all kinds of, of complications enter in. You see it in your own life. Show me a man who is actively involved in evangelism and I don't care how many other chinks he has in his armor. I'll show you a man who is vital in his commitment and walk with God. Show me a man who's doing everything else but evangelism. I'll show you a man who's shriveling up and dying on the vine. Christianity is a religion of mission. It's at the very heart of our commitment to Christ. And it just seems as though God blesses men who understand this and take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and run with it.
So when the church became institutionalized under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church, that is, this southern part here, and we know very little about the Celtic movement other than the fact that it never formed in the modality uh, structures and was responsible for the evangelization of the barbarians and the people in the northern part of Europe here. But in the southern part here, as it became institutionalized, it became sterile and uh, myopic and introverted. And to break out of that, we had the monastic movements. And the monastic movements were an endeavor on the part of conscientious Christians to try to put the edge back on Christianity and to really make uh, their commitment to Christ serious. The problem with it was that they made a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. And the secular man gets involved in the world like you men do. The spiritual man understands that that's not where the action is and so therefore he separates himself from the world. And that's why they joined the monastic orders. And these were the people who really wanted to make their lives count for God. And so there was that dualism, that dichotomy that was not present in the early days of the missionary movement when every man was a priest and every man understood that his responsibility was the propagation of the gospel. Complicating that was the fact that as the church institutionalized, it took upon itself the Levitical concept of the ministry. It looked to the Old Testament rather than the New Testament for its pattern. And so therefore the ministry was taken from the hands of the ordinary believer and put into the hands of the professional. And that caused a great deal of uh, slowing down of the, of the movement. And we talked about Augustine, who in, uh, from 354 to 430 AD gave the rationale for the dichotomy between the secular and the spiritual, the rationale for the importance of the church taking the position of the theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament and giving to the Pope the excuse that he needed for being not only the head of the church but also the head of the state. And so the Roman Catholic Church viewed itself as the heir to the Roman Empire. And when they moved in the secular dimension, they called it the Holy Roman Empire. That is, it was the old Roman Empire of the Caesars made new with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church and state were married. We finished off last night by a number of observations. One of the things that we, we noted was that whenever the church, whenever the movement of Jesus Christ associated itself with any particular culture or any particular political or economic system, immediately it put into effect a thing we called dissimulation. That is, the resistance and the part of people that were not part of that culture or that part of that political system or that part of that economic system who did not want to be assimilated, didn't want to be absorbed by it. And so they immediately became resistant to it. And we talked about some illustrations of that. That becomes exceedingly important in the movement of Christianity. Because whenever it hooks its wagon to the state that has tremendous growth, the backlash is always in the direction of dissimulation. One of the areas in which the uh, institution uh, found its desire to, to unite and to, to draw people together was in the creeds. And this is where we finished last night. And 
And people, by and large, are in agreement as to what the core of Christianity is. Even the person who doesn't believe the Bible, when he reads the Bible, he'll admit, he'll say to you, it's very obvious that the Bible teaches that salvation is in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that it's an exclusive religion. There's no other way to heaven other than that. The Bible claims authority. It claims to be the infallible, inspired word of God. And when people read it, they'll say, that's obviously what it says. I, I may not believe it. I may not agree with it. But I will agree that that's what it says. So it's not been difficult through the years for men to come to an agreement as to what the core of Christianity is. But then because of our culture and because of our background and the milieu from which we have come, what happens is we begin to add to that things in which the Bible is not all that clear. And we put those in the form of creeds. And those creeds always become divisive. And it's a tremendous lesson for us to learn. The more clearly we try to define our convictions and make them normative for other people, the more we participate in dissimulation. The more unattractive we become to the rest of Christianity. They will agree with us regarding the core. They will disagree with us <coughs> regarding the fringes. Now there's another phenomenon here. And that is that the Bible teaches unity. But when you institutionalize, it's irresistible to move from unity to union. And there's a difference between unity and union. Gentlemen, if you take a dog and a cat, tie their tails together and throw them over a clothesline, you have union, but you do not have unity. The two are different. Unity has to do with attitude. Union has to do with organization. The Bible calls upon us to be united. But the Bible does not call upon us to be in union. And through the years, Christianity has confused those two. And the move from unity to union always enhances the propensity for dissimulation. The reason why we're able to get along well as a band of brothers here this weekend is simply because we have unity, but we do not have union. The moment we try to organize us, the moment we try to put us together in an institutional form, and then from there begin to define what we believe and what those creeds ought to look like, man, we're scattered to the four winds. There's absolutely no way in the world we're going to keep the likes of us together. Isn't that true? And that is always the problem. Because though I want to be one with you in Christ I don't want to be assimilated into your cultural patterns I don't want you to insist that I believe what you believe in the things that are non-essential in the Bible the things that the Bible are not clear on and this is the reason why men whenever we look at traditions different than ours we always look at them with a certain amount of contempt and cynicism the fact of the matter is that whether you're Roman or whether you're Protestant or whether you're Greek or Russian Orthodox I don't care what tradition you come out of and you take a look at the things that they believe and you begin to understand why they believe them you understand that they all came out of the Bible and the reason why you hold them in contempt the reason why you laugh at them is you don't read the Bible the same way they read it for example the Roman Catholics believe in the thing we say called transubstantiation that is that the the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now those out of the Protestant tradition would say, that's utter nonsense. There's no way in the world you're going to get me to believe that that piece of bread there is the actual body of Christ. Where in the world do you get that idea? 
The truth of the matter is, if you read the Bible literally, that's exactly what you come up with. Or, for example, we take a look at the Mormons, which we do not consider to be a Christian religion. And one of the things that we laugh at them about is their belief in the baptism of the dead. Now, I'm not sure that you've ever heard a sermon preached on it, but there it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about being baptized for the dead. Nobody has the foggiest idea of what that means, and so we walk all, just walk right around the thing. We just avoid it. The Mormons take it up and make it a doctrine in their church, and we laugh at them. But the fact of the matter is they got it out of there. What are we saying? We're saying that whenever we take and make absolutes out of areas in which the Bible is ambiguous, we become divisive. And that characteristic is the very thing that turns the non-Christian off. And that is the reason why the modality has never been an effective missionary agency. Because the modality, as it institutionalizes, develops creeds, it develops a cultural pattern, it develops its own way of doing things, and then it becomes a caricature in the minds of the non-Christian who is watching. And what we've got to do is a band of men who have on their hearts the giving away of our faith to other people. What we've got to do is we've got to get into the Bible and separate what are the biblical absolutes as opposed to my convictions in areas that are not covered by the biblical absolutes. And that is the tension and that is the pressure that has been upon the church from the time of its conception. And we have it today. I mean, this issue is as relevant as yesterday's newspaper. Does that make sense? Are we together on that? Any questions or comments? How is the... Uh, I'm not sure I understand the mechanics of the, the monastic movement. Uh, I got the impression that when these people formed this... Uh, uh, I, I presume monastery, would that be the correct term? I, I got the impression that that was a closed society kind of thing, but how did that further the spread of the Christian faith if it was a closed uh, hermit kind of a society? Well, there were different forms of it. It's a good question. Well, but there were different forms of it. And there were those that were hermits. For example, in Egypt, there were those who went off into the backside of the desert and, and talked to nobody. They were completely isolationist. There were some of them that sat on pillars and they would sit on a pillar for 20 years and never get off of it. And people would come and bring food to them. Real wild things. All of them had in common their desire to really get serious in the commitment to Christ. And they divided the secular from the spiritual. And they said the guy who's out in the marketplace, the guy who's functioning like you are, is not really serious. He's, he's, he's in the world. And what you gotta do is you gotta get out of the world. And so the monastic movement was always, whether it was in the Greek Orthodox or whether it was in the Roman Catholic tradition or whether it was in the Celtics, it was always an endeavor to move toward being serious in their commitment to Christ. And it took various forms. And some of them were very separatistic. Some of them were very evangelistic. Obviously, the, those that were evangelistic were the ones that really spread the gospel. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Sure did. Sure did. As a matter of fact, it was out of that that the university system came in, in, in Europe. And we'll see that later, but that's exactly right. 
you made the statement yesterday that the reason that for the rapid spread of Christianity was due to the fact that they didn't ally themselves with any political or Correct. economic movement. And yet the statement you made today was that they never failed to jump on the bandwagon. Right. Good, good observation. The difference is this, that Christianity had already made tremendous inroads and gains in Europe by the conversion of Constantine. And looking in retrospect, in all probability, they would have won the empire anyway. But when the, 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 the government came with this golden platter and said, listen, here, it was, just, it was irresistible. But as we look in retrospect, the thing had already exploded. And it exploded in this direction also. And that's what we're going to look at today. So in every direction that it, it went, it would explode, simply because it was not tied to any political system. And in fact, by them uh, adopting the political environment in which they had that rapid growth, that in essence really slowed down. Yeah, it gave them initial growth because you had the support of the state. Who was on the coattails of who? If, if the movement was already rapidly expanding, it sounds to me like the political system jumped on the coattails of Christianity and still brought it down, you know, still slowed it down. I agree, but who, who was the force and where was the car? Yeah, but let's take a look at it today, Jack. If the United States government came and said to us, what we will do is we'll underwrite Christian schools, we really think it's important. We believe in it. We'll underwrite it. Man, and, and, the, and the millions of dollars of that entail, that is almost an irresistible offer. And there's the church, I mean, the government says, well, not only do we believe in that, we believe in missions. We'll underwrite your mission program. And not only that, but what we'll do is we'll give you, because we really believe in the church, we'll give you X number of dollars every year for the church. I mean, that's, that's just an awfully hard thing to resist. And when the, when the government comes along and says, we'll back your program to be far-sighted enough to turn that down, she says, not many people live there. <laughs> <laughs> Even at the uh, beginning of the monastic uh, region, weren't they evangelistic in the sense that uh, uh, people saw their commitment to Christ and they multiplied just by seeing Jesus in them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure is true. Remember, the explosion of Christianity in those early centuries was not through any organized movement. It was just through the laity reaching out and doing the job. But a number of things came into existence at the same time. One was the institutionalizing of the church, which is inevitable whenever you have a movement. The second was the picking up the Old Testament as their pattern, taking away the ministry from the laity and putting it to the professionals. And the third was the incorporating of Christianity into the Roman Empire as the official religion. Is monasticism always associated with uh, material poverty? In one degree or another, yes. Simply because the commandment of Jesus to forsake everything and be his follower implies the idea of taking the vow of poverty in one form or another. In the minds of people. Are you somewhere on this weekend going to draw the distinction between men who are in the business community and not poor and the monastic movement to spread Christianity? 
Yeah. yeah. and I have been to the Pope and we've already had his approval for a brand new order and we're going to have a sign up at the end of this time. Uh, Are you saying that the movement which is put in this country to have the government endorse prayers in schools and uh, the continuation of that <coughs> proclamation of being a Christian nation is really a bad deal? I'm not saying it's a bad deal. I'm just simply saying to you that when you move in that direction, you've got to understand what's happening to you. We'll see in church history, we'll see in the history of the movement of Christianity, there's always a struggle on the part of the church to control the state and the state to control the church. And that struggle is just like crazy. And uh, the United States government is no exception. They would control the church that quickly if we let them. And you see it, for example, in, in student loans. And what they're saying is, well, okay, we'll give student loans to people who go to schools that meet our requirements regarding such things as uh, a curriculum, regarding such things as um, uh, integration and, and minorities and so forth. And this is the big contest, for example, between the government and the Bob Jones University right now. And they say, well, we're going to take the tax-exempt status from Bob Jones University because they're not conforming to our ideas. That pressure is not new. That's been with the church from the time of its conception. And it's just, it, we do well to stand back, take a good look at it, and understand what we're doing when we play in that arena. The stakes are tremendously high. And so I'm not saying to you that we ought not to do that. I'm saying that when you do it, you set in motion a whole set of problems you're going to have to deal with. Yes? And as you pointed out, if the uh, church uh, accepted the offer of the government for all these things, and about two years from now, the rules and regs would come out, and uh, all of a sudden that's changed. And since they control the purse, uh, they make the rules. It would be great for a couple of years. That's right. But see, what happens in the government also happens within the, within the church. See, the, 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 the layman established a sodality. The layman established like the foreign Baptist missionary movement, all right? And the church says, that's illegitimate. It's going to come from us. And the layman say, we're going to do it anyway. And so they grumble and grumble and God blesses it. And the church looks at it and says, why? Well, it's pretty good. So we're going to get on that bandwagon. So the church joins it. And then it takes it over and then tells them what they can and cannot do and insists that all the people going overseas now become seminary trained and ordained and so forth and then the thing begins to die. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, so what the government does with the church is exactly what the modality does with the sodality. Yes? Or you're saying, you know, that's the sodality and the modality also, as I understood, said that the Celtics did not do that, but yet, why are they still around? They didn't move the modality. Or did they? Well, no, they were, they were a, a, a subtle movement. But see, they, they were eventually besieged and taken over, and that's what we're going to look at today. 
the pressures that came upon them eventually assimilated them and destroyed them. Yeah. Yes, Jim. Well, the main thing is that whenever you tie your commitment to Christ with any cultural or political institution, all those who don't agree with you in those convictions regarding politics and culture and so forth view, therefore, Christianity as an aberration and as something that's undesirable. See, Christianity is transcultural. And any, the moment we make it cultural, the moment we equate it with capitalism or the American way of life or democracy or any other thing like that, at that moment, it becomes unacceptable to a huge segment of society. Because any individual or organization that is not evangelistic eventually rots on the vine. Because Christianity is by its very nature mission. The scripture says the power of the whole thing is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And if the church allows any other motivating force, power or might, to push it, it won't go. Yeah. See, the, t- the temptation is irresistible. And we're a little ahead of ourselves, but it would be well to talk about it now because we're going to move into it anyway. But gentlemen, what we see taking place here in the history of the Christian movement is the very same thing we see taking place in our own homes. It's exactly how I handle my kids. See, I look at myself and I see what I did when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And then I take a look at my kids who become 15, 16, 17 years old. And I say, no way in the world I'm going to let them do what I did. Absolutely no way. And my attitude is that I, I have a profound distrust in myself. The Bible teaches me that I'm to have a profound distrust in myself. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The good I would I do not, but the evil that I would not that I do. See, I know those verses. I, I understand that. But I don't care how profound my distrust of me is, my distrust of you is even greater. <laughs> and the reason for that is obvious. I have a track record. See, I know that the Holy Spirit can get my attention. He's done it. The thing I'm not sure about is whether the Holy Spirit can get your attention. And therefore, I try to control. And that's exactly who I am with my kids. I say to myself, yeah, yeah, God got my attention. You know, I walk right down the edge of the precipice, but I don't recommend it for my kids, and therefore I'm not going to let them walk there. Because I don't really believe in the foul houses, and I don't want to word it this way, but I don't really believe that the Holy Spirit can do for my kids what he did for me. He needs my help. And so therefore, what I do is I exercise control in my family unit beyond the parameters of the biblical absolutes. Now, the Bible admonishes us and calls upon us to insist that people live in conformity with the commandments of God. But I don't feel comfortable there because that's a lot of liberty. And so what I do is I say, yeah, but we're going to include that a little bit more. 
And so what happens is, I set up rules and I set up regulations and I develop creeds and what we can and cannot believe. And at that particular point, I become a participant in the process of dissimulation. But that which we see in the church is the very thing we see in the home. And it is the product of our distrust of our fellow man. I do not believe that God can do through you what he did through me. Therefore, I've got to control you. And the children, in your analogy, are, uh, they have this fear of assimilation. You're seeing dissimulation in their, their rebellion is dissimulation. Yeah, they want to be their own people. See, and you say to them, don't commit adultery. Don't fornicate. And they say, well, where do you get that, Dad? Well, you read the Bible to them. Are you going to be in uh, submission to God or you're not going to be in submission to God? You're going to make a decision. Hey, God has no grandchildren. It's between you and Him. Are you going to make a decision for God or not? So we lead our kids to Christ. They get that understood. Now I come to them and I say, you can't go to movies. You can't have wine. Beer. You can't gamble. Etc., etc. And they say, where do you get that, Dad? <laughs> this is not acceptable <laughs> yeah but dad um, says who is not acceptable well the Bible says it's from all appearances of evil and that's an appearance of evil dad who says it's an appearance of evil well you know people are offended by it and look what Paul says Paul says don't do anything that's an offense to the weaker brother and so my kids are pretty astute and they look at that and they say, yeah, Dad, but the weaker brother in the Bible was the non-Christian. The weaker brother today is the old battle axe that's been in the church for 50 years trying to run everybody else's business. The non-Christian, he doesn't care if I do these things. They're going to do it anyway because I said so. As long as you're on my roof, they're going to do it this way. Kilt. And that's where we are. And what happens is I'm not advocating, you know, that we go out and, and, and we gamble and drink and do the other thing. But you see, they are the product of my own personal convictions. The thing that makes me nervous is letting my kids develop their own convictions. <laughs> yes. I thought it was a curious fact in this book that you read that some of the greatest uh, philosophers and people are enemies of the Christian faith were Yeah. See, and that's scary. And we see it today. Let's face it, gentlemen. Most gung-ho, enthusiastic Christians come from non-Christian homes. Most Christian homes produce either non-Christian kids or nominal, mediocre, lukewarm Christian kids. And boy, that ought to sober us. They're the very thing we're talking about. We do not... Yeah. That's where we are. And that's what I'm hoping, this is one of the lessons I'm hoping that we can learn from 
the historical development of the Christian movement. And whenever we do that, either individually or institutionally, it always becomes counterproductive. Yes? Everything we can talk about is a contrast between souls and hope, whether it's in church or in home or whatever. Is there ever going to be a point where those two can be compatible? And I see this as a very effective way if they could be compatible of raising children or evangelizing the world or yeah. Well, if, if I have communicated that total is good and modal is bad, forgive me. I have not meant to communicate that. They're equally valid. The problem, the tension comes when misunderstanding the functions of the modal and the total. You see, the church has never been given the task of evangelism. The task of the church is the building up of itself. Again, evangelism is an individual, not a corporate responsibility. But when the church institutionalizes and becomes a modality in a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Roman Catholic or a Baptist form, the tendency is to define all legitimate ministry within the confines of its program. So it draws a circle around itself and says everything inside is legitimate, everything outside is illegitimate. And if I'm really benevolent, and I'm really a nice guy, then I say everything inside of this church and everything outside of it is parachurch. And so then what I do is I say that if you really are down to business for God, it happens within the confines of what it is we're pulling off. And it's at that point in the modality ceases to become effective. You see, the early church, back in those formative years, they formed modalities. I mean, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, they all had modalities. But they understood that the task of evangelism was individual. So the task of the church that they accepted was to, to equip believers to be evangelists. Exactly. And that's what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. The gifted men have been given to the church to equip the saints that the saints might do the work of the ministry. But see, there again, when we embraced the Levitical concept of the ministry, we dealt the death blow to that idea and gave the ministry to the professional rather than to the lay. So by definition, those two, so the cannot, by the definition, Oh, they are compatible. It's because every modality has sodalities. See, the Sunday school class in our church is a sodality. See, Bob and I, uh, Bob's the teacher, I'm the assistant, and then Mr. and Mrs. class. That's a sodality. Not everybody can belong to that. I've got a question, then. If we are all in agreement that, um, that God is in the presence of individuals and not and why can't the modality preach that God is in the business of individuals and not in the business of the, the institution? In other words, that's what's, what's continually... Right. And Dick, the reason for that is the same reason I panic when I'm raising my kids. Because I look at my children and I say, yeah, I know God got my attention, but Lord, it just makes me awfully nervous to let them have that kind of liberty. Now, I came out of a non-Christian background I came to Christ when I was in college. I was in the path of self-destruction. I could see it clearly. 
And some nights I break out in a cold sweat, waking up and dreaming about what that used to be like. And I say to myself, God, I don't want my kids to go through that. And so I deny them the right to learn from God those lessons that only God can teach them. In other words, I want to control them. So we should not try to control that situation as far as hammering, hey, this should be, this should be, this way. Right. In other words, that should be a decision on their own. Yeah. See, see, we can sit here as a group of men and say, yeah, that's the way it ought to be when we get home. Punt. Isn't that right? And that's exactly where the modality is coming from. And that's why they write the creeds. That's why they have the rules and the regulations. That's why they say you can't do this and you can't do that. Well, then you, you're better off to discuss and talk about your own sinful nature. Not, say, preach what you should do, but...